I'm going to go ahead and pray. God, our Father, Lord, we praise you, we honor you, and we bless you. We thank you, Lord, that it is you that has made us and not we ourselves. Lord, you are the creator. You have given us life and breath and everything else we have. Lord, you are the sustainer of your universe, upholding everything by the word of your power. We praise you and we thank you for our life. We thank you for our breath. We thank you for our family, for our loved ones, for our jobs, our cars, our homes, our food, everything that we have, God. We thank you for your rich blessing in our lives. We are very grateful and we honor you this day for all that you are to us. Lord, our provider, you give to us everything we need. And God, even more than this, you have given us eternal life through our Lord Jesus Christ and through his shed blood on the cross. We praise you, God. We honor you and we thank you for such a rich blessing. Lord, who could have thought of such an amazing love that you would display to us at the cross? Lord, we stand in awe of what you have done. And Lord, we uh, seek to know and understand all of the heavenly blessings that dwell in the atoning blood of Jesus. Lord, we thank you for these things, and I pray that you would give us light, light to our eyes that we might see and know and understand you better, and the great and marvelous works which you have done in our Lord Jesus. God, give us ears to hear, and give us soft, willing hearts of obedience, God, hearts that are willing to love you and to worship you with everything that is within us, God. I pray that you would remind us again this day that, Lord, you are the reality behind all things and that, Lord, you are our all in all and that we were created for your purposes, God, and that our chief end is to glorify you and to enjoy you, God, all the days of our life, even to the ends of eternity, world without end. I pray, God, that it would be our goal and our aim to love you, to honor you, to walk in all your ways and to rejoice in the beauty of who you are, and to enjoy your presence, and your power, and your peace, and your joy. We thank you, we honor you, and we bless you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so then, with that, we've been in a series talking about the atonement, or the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, having spent the first part of the year talking about the person of Jesus, now we're talking about the work of Jesus. And we're focusing specifically on, right now, what we call the atonement. And we have defined the atonement as the whole scope of Christ's saving work. So we're not using that word in our study here in the biblical sense of what it means in its context in various places but we're using it to speak of the whole scope of Christ's saving work and what he did on the cross and, and all that that means to us and how the Bible expresses, us, expresses it to us in its many and varied ways. So then, we have in our talk about the atonement, we were saying that the atonement was the focal point of all of human history. It's the very, it's the very central event that God created the, the world to bring to pass because it's part of his plan to redeem fallen man. And so God has arranged the circumstances of history to fulfill this plan of redemption, ultimately culminating in Jesus dying on the cross. And I have said, the the reason why God created the world was so that Jesus could die on the cross. The reason why we have human history is so that Jesus could consummate the ages with his death on the cross and redeem the saints of God from their sins. And so if you will, we talked about it from that aspect and, and uh, we went on and we talked about, about d- defining the atonement, how the Bible uses different kinds of words to describe it and different kinds of concepts and ideas to describe it. And uh, that was uh, on your lesson on pages, uh, uh, pages 39 uh, and 40. And then we went into a discussion about the necessity of the atonement, why we need the atonement. And obviously because we've been separated by God because of sin, our sins need to be satisfied uh, because they have enraged the wrath of a holy God. 
and that uh, there's a great need and necessity for the atonement. But not only is there a need for the atonement because of sin, there's also an absolute and specific necessity for the exact means by which our sins were atoned for. So we talked about the fact that there was an absolute necessity for Christ to come and die, for Christ, eternal God, God the Son, to become a man incarnate and become a human being and become one of us and live a perfectly righteous life and give his life as an unblemished sacrifice to God to put away sins once for all. And that that is the absolute necessity uh, is required by the means, uh, I'm sorry, the means are the ap- is, is absolutely necessary for it to come to pass in that way. And of course we spent quite a bit of time talking about that. Uh, and that is, discussion is on your handouts on pages uh, 42 and 43. And then last week we started um, further defining the atonement by talking about the nature of the atonement. What is the nature of the atonement? And now again, here we're looking, taking a little bit closer look at all the different ways that the Bible describes the atonement and the different concepts and ideas that it uses to, to describe these things to us. And so in talking about the nature of the atonement, we have so far said a couple of things, and we're going to move on from there today. Um, but before I do that, I want to make a recommendation to you on a couple of more books. And I want to get you... Um, Working on this now because we're going to get to this in the weeks and months to come, okay? And so uh, the book I had recommended before was Redemption Accomplished and Applied by John Murray. If you don't have this, get it. How many of you actually got this book? How many of you have thoroughly enjoyed it? It's been a great benefit and resource to you, okay? Uh, man, I, I wish I could get you to get this book and read it. It's profound. But... So what's going to happen is we're going to go into this discussion about what justification is, and and not just that, but justification by faith. Because what we're going to do is we're going to move on from a discussion about the work of Jesus Christ, and we're going to talk about the message of Jesus Christ, which is formerly the gospel. And when we talk about the gospel and we talk about what's at stake in the gospel and what the content of the gospel message really is in the Bible, the heart of the matter is this idea of justification by faith alone. Okay? And it is my firm belief that this is the central doctrine of the Christian faith and that I agree with Luther wholeheartedly who said, this is the doctrine on which the church stands or falls. Okay, and so if you will, this is a book I'd like to recommend to you. Um, It's published by Soli Deo Gloria, and it's called Justification by Faith Alone. And it's actually it has several authors: John MacArthur, R.C. Sproul, Joel Beek, John Gerstner, and Don Kistler. So there's there's five separate articles on justification by faith contained in this book by those authors. Okay. This is a really good resource, and it kind of hits justification by faith from several different angles by some really good uh, Bible scholars. However, the chief work, I believe, in church history on the doctrine of justification is this one by James Buchanan, and it's called Not Guilty. And uh, if you will, he's a, uh, he's a 19th century guy. Um, you can get this book online just go in there type type in Buchanan not guilty it'll come up I think I got this at christianbook.com furthermore this entire text of this book is on my website on the resource page if you go to the resource page and just look just go down there till you see where it says uh, I think it either says not guilty or it says justification by faith James Buchanan and you can you can download that the entire text of this book on PDF right there off my website on the resource page. Okay, so I uh, wanted to recommend those books to you, and I wanted to get you reading at least one of these because probably in about five or six weeks we're going to be into this topic on justification by faith, and uh, there's going to be a lot of discussion about it, and uh, it's going to help us sew up our whole understanding of the gospel. Uh, of, of atonement, what it is, and how we communicate it, and what the real issues are that are at stake when we're communicating the gospel. And uh, so, anyway, I wanted to get to get you going on that. 
Okay, so then, in discussing the nature of the atonement, we at first said that it's important to understand that the atonement is by nature grounded in the sovereign decree of God. In other words, there's the reason for the atonement is because that's the way God decreed that it should come to pass from before the ages began. That God promised, if you will, God the Father promised to the Son um, a church, a people for his very own. And the Son promised to the Father to go to the world and to redeem the church by this amazing display of love on the cross. And that the Spirit agreed with the Father and the Son to apply the benefits of this atonement um, through regeneration and through sanctification to his church and to purify for himself this people for his very own. And that, that Trinitarian unity that was in the mind of God forever and ever in eternity has come to fruition in the creation. Are you with me? So because each of the members of the Trinity are fully omniscient, everyone embracing all of the comprehensive knowledge of all of human history have by uh, the fact that the creation brought the creation into pa- to pass, have each one agreed to play their role and their part. Okay, of course we call this the, the covenant of redemption, or in many writers it's referred to as the covenant of grace. Okay, but it's the idea that the the the, the members of the Trinity made a covenant with themselves in eternity to bring this whole thing to pass. And so then, if you will, God's plan of redemption, God's plan for salvation, is um, brought to pass in the atonement of Christ. It's the fulfillment of God's eternal plan. It's the fulfillment of God's eternal purpose in Christ Jesus our Lord, in the language of Ephesians 3.11. It is the atonement that is that which God purposed to do from before the ages began. So that when the atonement comes to pass, it's not flawed in some way because sinful man somehow messed it up like everything else that sinful man has put his hand to. But instead, perfect, holy God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ himself carried it out by the plan of God, right? And so let me just remind you of a couple of scriptures and getting you thinking about just how sure this is. Take your Bible, turn to Acts 2. Acts 2. And so, just thinking, just for a minute, about the idea that God purposed this thing from before the world began. This thing, what thing? The thing that Jesus would come and die on the cross and redeem us from our sins. That's, that's all happening according to the plan of God. Okay? Ephesians, I'm sorry, Acts chapter 2, and let's start in verse 22. Look what it says there. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. And so here you have this declaration uh, by the Apostle Peter that God um, is the one who, if you will, delivered over Jesus by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. And that these wicked men carried it out by the hands of godless men. Right? And so, if you will, God planned it, wicked men carried it out. And Jesus himself was the atoning victim. Jesus himself was the one who gave himself for us. Amen? Take a right turn over to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. Why am I forgetting where this verse of scripture is? I guess I'm getting old. Yeah, that's it. 27 and 28. Okay, so here again we have the same thing affirmed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. 
And so, if you will, you see here in the scripture um, <clears throat> the, 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 the passion of Jesus on the cross as a sacrifice for sins is happening according to the predetermined plan of God. It's been predestined by God to occur. Okay, That's what the scripture says there in the black and white. And, of course, we know this is true. We know that everything that happens in the world happens at the decree of God. Amen? So... <clears throat> Uh, it's important to understand then when we think about the atonement to think about it in these terms. God is the author of it. It is therefore perfect. It's complete. It's sufficient. It is certain. Right? And this was our point when we were saying it was grounded in the uh, eternal decree of God. What this means is, is that atonement for sin is therefore absolutely certain. Okay, Jesus did accomplish what God planned for him to come and accomplish so that we have good hope that our sins are fully atoned for. Amen? Okay. So then we went on and we began talking about the idea, and this is kind of where we ended last week, that the death of Christ upon the cross was motivated by free and sovereign love. And the point is that God was not obligated to save us. He was in no way obligated to save us, but he did that freely. He is the one who chose to save us, not out of an obligation. Did God owe us something? Has God ever owed a man anything that God should repay him? Of course not. Amen? So, so God didn't do it out of obligation. He did it out of freedom. Because he's the only being that's really truly free. God can do anything he wants. He's the only one who can do anything he wants. Amen? Amen. And that by nature then God is free. He's free to do whatever he wills. What does he will? He wills to save his elect through the death of his son Jesus on the cross. That is according to the good pleasure of his will. And he does that freely. Okay? So God was not obligated to save us, but in fact purposed to save us freely. God did not owe mankind a debt. On the contrary, he is the one offended by the actions of people. Therefore, if he plans to save the offending rebels, he does it by his own sovereign and free prerogative. He does it because he is gracious and merciful. Therefore, God's love is not constrained by anything except the perfect free and sovereign pleasure of his will. Okay? And, and to family, this is something we ought to glorify God for. Are you with me? Or you could, you could, you could express it this way. Why me? <laughs> Why am I a recipient of the love and grace of God? And here's the answer. Because God decided to make you a recipient of his love and grace. According to his own sovereign good pleasure, he freely saved you. He freely saved you. And he freely saved me, Sean. This is a very personal thing. You understand? Are you with me? God loved you, and that's why you're saved. He set his love upon you. Right? Or in the words of the Apostle Paul in Ephesians Chapter 1, verse 4, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. Okay? And so the point is, is look, God is the one who chose to save us. And he did that in love, it says. In love he predestined us. Right? And, 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 and what is the motivating factor? He freely bestowed it upon us. He did it in his freedom. He wasn't obligated. He wasn't constrained by anything. It's a free expression of his mercy. Okay? Glorious truth. This is what grace is. It's unmerited favor. Amen? Amen. Okay, well... We had a rather lengthy discussion about that last year. Um, and all that stuff is on my website or it's on the church website if you'd like to go listen in on some of that. So then, in talking about the fact that the atonement is motivated by God's free and sovereign love, 
This love is so profound that he himself is willing to be the atoning victim and bear the very penalty which is reserved for those who induce his holy wrath. He is the sacrificial lamb which has to die in my place and for my sin. What amazing love is this? Okay? And here's this point to get from the New Testament Greek word which is used and translated as propitiation. Okay? The Greek word is the word halisterion, and here's what it means. It means the atoning victim. And that's why, if you look at the verse there on the handout, 1 John 2, 2, this is what it's saying. Listen. He himself, don't miss that. He himself is the propitiation. He's the lamb dying on the altar personally for my sins and for your sins. Jesus is the one who's bearing your wicked sins in his own body on the tree because he loves you enough to save you. Are you with me? And this is what the word vicarious means. This is what the word vicarious means. It was for us. It's a very personal thing. Remember how I told you when the Old Testament, the guy would, the family heads would take the sacrifice to the priest? Do you remember? The priest doesn't kill the sacrifice. Are you with me? This is a very personal thing. So here is this man taking this animal, which he's been caring for and raising, to the priest, to the tent of meeting where he will meet with God. And there in that place, he takes his knife and he slays that animal and he drains the life's blood out of that animal right there for his own sin. Are you with me? It's a very profoundly personal thing. And that animal's life is ebbed away right there before his own eyes and with his own hands. And that animal is dying there symbolically for his own sins. And that's pointing to the greater reality of the Lord Jesus Christ, who he himself is the atoning victim for our sins. He is that lamb that's on that altar dying personally for me, Sean. Jesus died for Sean. Are you with me? He's not just some token sacrifice. He's my own personal sacrifice. Are you with me? Okay, that's what this... This is, this is what this means, 1 John 2.2. 2. He himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. As we have stated, there is a host of biblical terms which describe the character of the atonement. This is to say that the Bible uses many different terms in passages to describe what it is and what has been accomplished by it. Okay, so... Number one, the atonement is grounded in God's eternal decree. Number two, it's motivated by his free and sovereign love. Number three, it is a picture of sacrifice. Here's the way the Bible describes what Christ did. Okay, Um, Its very nature is that which is pictured in the Old Testament sacrifice. Okay, So you're, you're flipping through your Old Testament, you're reading all these sacrifices in this Levitical priesthood and all the stuff that's going on in Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and, and all the way through the Old Testament, even up to the time of Jesus, right? They're still sacrificing there, blood sacrifices for sins. And um, that picture of sacrifice is pointing to the ultimate reality of Christ. And the way that the Bible expresses atonement to us, it does it in this way. It's a sacrifice. Okay, so you think about what a sacrifice means, right? Well, we, we make sacrifices all the time, right? Let's say that, you know, my, uh, my brother needs help. So I sacrifice my personal time of whatever I'm busy to go help my brother. And it's a sacrifice. I'm giving up my time to go help my brother. Well, in this case, Jesus is giving up his life for my sins, <laughs> which have offended him in the first place. 
Are you with me? And this picture of sacrifice is the way that God has chosen to manifest and display his love to us. So the Old Testament sacrifice is pointing to the atonement ultimately. And it's giving us a picture of what it's like in, in, in very clear terms. What is it? How are we going to be reconciled to God? Through sacrifice. That's how. Okay? And so, um, therefore, Christ is our sacrifice. Our Passover lamb that died vicariously or for us. And as a substitute or in our place. Okay? Jesus is a sacrifice in our place. He's a substitute in our place. And he is there dying vicariously for us. Personally. He's our. He's my Passover lamb. He's your Passover lamb. Are you with me? And because of his blood, now the death angel can pass you over. Are you with me? It's a very personal thing. But this picture of sacrifice that we get in the Old Testament describes to us what the atonement is like. It gives us a description of the nature of the atonement. And here's what John Murray says about that. He says, The sacrifice was the divinely instituted provision whereby sin might be covered and the liability to divine wrath and curse removed. The Old Testament worshiper when he brought his oblation to the altar, substituted an animal victim in his place. In laying his hands upon the head of the offering, there was transferred symbolically to the offering the sin and liability of the offerer. This is the pivot on which the transaction turned. The notion in essence was that the sin of the offerer was imputed to the offering and the offering bore as a result the death penalty. You see that? And that's what that sacrifice did. That sacrifice was being given. That life of that sacrifice was being given for that man and his family's sins. Okay? And that's the Old Testament picture of a sacrifice. It's a transaction. I like the word he uses there. He says the, uh, the pivot on which the transaction turned. What pivot? That the man's sins were being imputed to that lamb and that lamb was being slain and his life was being poured out for the sins of that man. Well, Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament Passover and the very sacrificial lamb portrayed by it. He is the reality to which the Passover pointed, the ultimate sacrifice to cover our sin so that the death angel of God's wrath could pass us by and we could be set free from the bondage of sin or Egypt and slavery and Pharaoh. If you will, all of those Old Testament things are pictures. They're types and shadows of the reality of who Christ is. And Egypt is a picture of the world. And Pharaoh is a picture of Satan. Right, And their slavery under Pharaoh is a picture of our bondage to sin. Right, And in the Passover lamb, we are um, covered with the blood over the doorpost so that when the death angel comes and brings judgment upon the world, right, the people of God are set free. Are you with me? And right on out into the waters of baptism in the Red Sea. And out into the wandering in the desert and sanctification by the Holy Spirit. Amen? Been walking through a desert lately? <laughs> Just don't grumble. Okay? Learn the lesson. Read the book and learn the lesson. Okay. <clears throat> so then, last 1 Corinthians 5, 7 says, Clean out the old leaven that you may be a new lump just as you are in fact unleavened. For Christ our Passover also has been sacrificed. You see what Paul's saying? He says, you are in fact unleavened. You've been cleansed. Why? Because Jesus has been sacrificed. He is our Passover. Amen? Okay then, so not only this, but Jesus' death has an eternal and perfect efficacy that the Old Testament sacrifices of goats and bulls could never afford. This is because Jesus himself entered heaven and the true tabernacle of God to offer his blood there in the presence of God. Now think about what the Bible's doing here. In Hebrews, it's going to explain to us that those Old Testament sacrifices that were taking place 
with the priesthood under the law were just a type and a shadow of what the reality is in Christ. And that reality is so great that it's not just some allegorical symbol, but there's actually a meeting place in heaven with God whereby Jesus must take his own blood there to go and sprinkle the mercy seat so that we can be cleansed there in the presence of God eternally. Okay, And so that when he accomplishes that redemption in the presence of God, it's an eternal redemption. It's an redemption redemption that lasts forever. Are you with me? And so goats and bulls don't have to continue to be sacrificed again and again and again. Christ died for sins once for all to bring us to God. Amen? And so this is what it says there in Hebrews 9, verses 11 and 12. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. This scripture says... Jesus himself went to heaven into the presence of God and there offered his blood as an atoning victim and there in the presence of God eternally made propitiation for our sins so that it is a done deal. It's an eternal redemption. It's not a temporal redemption. It's an eternal redemption. Okay? It's once for all. It's complete. It's final. It's comprehensive. It's perfect. It's sufficient. Are you with me? Amen. Okay? So that's the idea here, is that the, atone- the Bible paints this picture of the atonement of Christ as being in the very presence of God, finally done and completed, so that now he, it says in Hebrews 10, offered his own body as an offering and sat down at the right hand of God. It's done. It is finished. Redemption has been accomplished. Amen? Amen. The mercy seat has been sprinkled. The Passover lamb has been sacrificed. These are has-beens. Amen? They're realities. They're realities that have taken place. He obtained an eternal redemption. His death was one sacrifice for sins for all time. That is, it was final, complete, and sufficient to atone. Hebrews 10.13 And every priest stands... I'm sorry, 10.11-13 Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for that time onward until his enemies would be made a footstool for his feet. Okay? And you remember, when the writer to the Hebrews wrote this, it was during a time when Israel was still offering sacrifices for sin. And here he is trying to convince these Hebrews... Right? That Jesus is what it was all pointing to. He's here. He's fulfilling it. He's greater than your whole religious system. He himself is the reality to which it was pointing. Right? And so, because God has instituted the sacrificial system as a means of atonement, he has therefore been pleased to have a sacrifice appease or satisfy his wrath. Listen, this is God's plan. This is the way God wants to be appeased. This is the way God intends to be satisfied. Okay? He's the one that's instituted a sacrifice. You know, the Old Testament says that He is a God who requires blood. That's a way that our God is described in the Old Testament. He who requires blood. Are you with me? This is God's means of redemption. This is what God instituted to satisfy his own holy wrath. Okay? And and he didn't just do it at the expense of us. He did it at the expense of himself. (laughs) At, At the great cost of his own perfect son. What a horrifying thing to think that Jesus, the perfect son of God, should have to take on death. That that ought to rip the heavens and the earth into pieces. You understand what I'm saying? 
It's a, it's a glorious reality beyond our comprehension. The price, the value of the Son of God having to die for wicked rebels. Are you with me? Well, <clears throat> this we call propitiation. This sacrifice, this appeasement, this satisfaction of God's wrath. Propitiation is an appeasement. The, the holy anger and wrath of God towards sin demands the satisfaction of justice. And his vengeance is enraged towards sin and must have a subject to inflict the good and righteous penalty of death. And, and we've talked about this. But the very nature of God, because he's holy and he's pure and he's all-powerful and he's without sin, because of that nature, sin is an ultimate offense against God. One sin, one sin is an ultimate offense against God. So God by his nature, not, not because he chooses to, but because his nature demands that he break out against sin in wrath. Are you following me? Wrath is not a choice of God. Wrath is something that's bound up in his very nature. Okay? And because of that, he chooses for his wrath to break out against sin. But it's bound up in the fact that he's holy. Okay? And, and wrath is the natural consequence of sin. It has to come to pass because of the, the nature of who God is. Are you with me? It's hard to find words to articulate uh, that principle. Uh, and we, t- we did talk about it to some degree already, but this is what the scripture says. The wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. That is the consequence of sin, death, which is exactly what God warned Adam and Eve of. Right? In the day you eat from that tree, you shall surely die. Right? And, and God, has been, God has been heralding this message to mankind ever since Adam and Eve. Right? <laughs> the Old Testament law says this again and again and again. Right? He who sins, he's going to die. The prophets, Ezekiel, right? Ezekiel 18, the soul that sins, it shall die. Amen? And the wages of sin is death. That's why we die. That's why there's death, right? Through Adam, uh, one, through, through one man's sin, death entered the world, the scripture says, Romans 5.12, right? And so death spread to all men because all sinned, right? <clears throat> well, so the fact is, is that this holy wrath of God it, it, it's, it comes from his very nature. His very nature demands justice for sin. Okay? And so God has provided as a means for that a sacrifice, a propitiation, an atoning victim. Okay? Uh, how does it happen? It happens by means of a replacement. It happens by means of a, of a replacement, of a substitute. Right? For one to be in the place of substitute. The the sacrifice is in the place of. Okay? So God is not just dismissing his wrath. He's not just dismissing, dismissing the idea that death is the consequence of sin. But instead, his his wrath is being poured out on Jesus the Lamb. Are you with me? Therefore, we must have a a substitute. Why? Why must we have a substitute? Because that's the means that God has ordained that atonement should be brought to pass. That's according to the eternal decree of God, which is good and perfect and altogether righteous. Are you with me? We must have a substitute to satisfy God's wrath or be consumed ourselves. This is what sets Christianity apart from every other world religion. Jesus Christ is the only sufficient substitute who can meet the just requirements of God's law in order to die vicariously for us and as a substitute in our place. Jesus becomes then this propitiation himself to appease the wrath of God. 
Okay? Family, this, this is so simple. When you talk about Christianity and world religions, they are miles apart. And they cannot possibly be reconciled one with another. Because no other world religion preaches a Christ who's dying on a cross, who is in fact himself God, very God, and the very atoning victim that God has sent to appease his own wrath because of sin. There's no other religious system that proclaims that message. And that's the heart of the Christian faith. The heart of the Christian faith is the atoning death of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who's dying for sins on the cross. Are you with me? And no other religious system presents it like that. Every other religious system presents a system of works by which you can merit God's favor. And that's impossible. In fact, the moment you think you've merited God's favor, you have forfeited Christ. For by grace you have been saved. And this is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works lest any man should boast. The only boasting we have is in the cross. The only boasting we have is in the Lamb of God, Jesus who died for my sins. Amen? Okay. Hebrews 2.17 puts it like this. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Okay? Read this with me again. Look at it. He had to be made like his brother. In other words, the incarnation had to happen. Jesus had to become a man. That's what he's saying. He had to be made like us. Right? Why? Look at the last part of the verse. To make propitiation for the sins of the people. He had to become a man and die as a man because his life as a man fulfilled the perfect requirements of God's law for us and in our place. Are you with me? Okay. Therefore, the atonement does in fact appease or satisfy God's holy wrath towards sin. Okay? And this is where we say, man, I'm set free. I'm released, uh, Revelation 1.5. I'm released from my sins by his blood. Amen? Yeah. Listen, Jesus' death did atone for sin. It satisfied the holy wrath of God. <coughs> Amen? Yeah. Glorious, glorious truth. Because this is true. The atonement is also expiatory. This is to say that it removes our guilt. By meeting the demands of holy justice fully. Okay? The offense of our sins has been absorbed by the sacrifice of the body of Jesus for us. And the requirements of God's justice have been canceled out. Okay? This is the way that the New Testament describes this. Look with me at Colossians 2. It says there, And you were dead in your transgressions and sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh... I'm sorry, and when you were, he made you alive together with him, having been forgiven all, having forgiven all of our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting in decrees against us. Here's what that means. Here's what that means. Let's get a picture of what that means. We're talking about the demands of God's holy law being met, right? And so God's law says, if you sin, you die. Are you with me? So what did we do? We sinned. Now what? Death. Right? Are you with me? So here's the holy law of God. You sin, you die. Are you with me? Now here's what the scripture says in the New Testament. Having canceled out the certificate of death, Look right here. Having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us. Ones like this. 
Thou shalt have no other gods before me. I am the Lord. Thou shalt not take my name in vain. Thou shalt keep my day holy. Thou shalt honor thy father and thy mother. And every one of those decrees which is against us, which we have violated again and again and again, the scripture says, Jesus has canceled them out. Are you with me? Look here. Which was hostile to us and has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Now, here's this is what it looks like now. It's taken it out of the way. It's canceled out. Your sins have been removed as far as the east is from the west, never to be found again, drowned in the depths of the sea, says the psalmist. Amen? Listen, this is the glorious gospel. Okay, And this happened through the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ in his one sacrifice and offering upon the tree. Okay, That's the New Testament gospel. Well, what we're saying then is, is, is because this penalty has been paid in full and removed, guess what you don't have anymore? You no longer have any guilt. Why have you no guilt? Because Jesus drunk the wrath. There's no drops left for you. Amen? Now, was his death sufficient to remove your guilt? Or wasn't it? Was it? I mean, what was it that God planned from all eternity? (laughs) What, What was it that God sent his son to come to the cross and die for? To remove your guilt. Right? Not only to appease his wrath. And he did that. Right? But once the wrath has been appeased, there's no guilt left. The wrath has been poured out. Listen, God didn't just wink at our sins and say, Oh, I'm just going to forgive you. No, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. The curse of the law fell on Jesus who was the last one in the world who should ever have to face such a thing. Are you with me? And so because he did that, family, listen, let me tell you something. You are not, you have been declared not guilty in the court of God. That's what it means. So stop pounding yourself day and night. Okay? Jesus has set you free. You're free. So now just go love God. Just love Him with everything that's in you. Look at His glorious law and say, My, how glorious and beautiful is this law. Oh, that I could keep it. Are you with me? But when you fail, the law is not here no longer to condemn you to death. Jesus did that for you. You with me? And he who the Son sets free is free indeed. He's free. It's done. It's finished. Telestai. It's final. It's complete. Sat down at the right hand of God. Amen? Your guilt has been removed. The wrath of God has been appeased. That's what happened at the cross. Amen? Glorious. Glorious truth. Absolutely glorious. The penalty deserved in our guilt has been paid in full by the sacrifice of Christ. This is to say then that the atonement is redemptive. It pays the price required by justice. Okay, so we talked about the fact that atonement was a sacrifice, right? It was a replacement, a substitute. It was vicarious, right? And, and we talked about the fact that it propitiates God, it appeases or satisfies his wrath, and that it's expiatory, it removes our guilt, right? Well, here's another way the Bible describes it. The Bible describes it as a price, an accounting term, a money, a price that was paid, okay? So that, so that God's, God's holy law was demanding for sin a price, which was death. Again, another picture from the New Testament of what atonement is. Okay? 
And so, so the Bible uses the term redemption, right? Redemption is an accounting term. It's a money term. It's a term that talks about paying a price. And so the New Testament describes it in these terms, right? Um, Jesus' death on the cross is seen as a ransom price paid to redeem us from the penal sanctions of the law. So when we talk about the penal sanctions of the law, we're talking about the penalty of death. Okay, that's why in the atonement we call it the penal substitutionary death of Christ. It's a penalty. Jesus had to pay the penalty of the law. The penalty of the law was death. Okay, this is important, family. This is under attack like never before in liberal Christianity. Okay, you know, I mean, you wouldn't believe the things that so-called Christian writers write about this. And how they reject this idea that God punished Christ. You know, a, a loving father would never do that to his son, is their reasoning. Okay? And they missed the whole point of the Bible. Right? They're looking through the forest and they can't see a tree. Are you with me? But we know, indeed and in fact, that the law has a penalty for sin, and the penalty is death. And Jesus bore our death in his body on the tree, in our place and for us. And that is the message of the New Testament. Amen? Amen? And so the penal sanctions of the law, where it says, when you violate this, you shall die, right? Those have been paid by Jesus. He paid the ransom price for sins, demanded by God's law. Okay? His death was redemptive. And so it says in 1 Timothy 2, for there, uh, verse 5, there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony born at the proper time. And Jesus' death is the full payment Christ demanded by the law because of our violations of it. He redeemed us, the scripture says, from the curse of the law. What's the curse of the law? The curse of the law is this. The wages of sin is death. Amen? But what does the Bible say? It says that, that Jesus redeemed us from that curse. He paid the price demanded by the law. Okay? So here's the deal. Let's just, let's just put a figure on it, although that would really isn't a healthy thought. It'll help just for this demonstration. Let's just say it was a buck. Let's just say the price that the law was demanding was one American dollar. Okay? You know what Jesus did? He paid one American dollar. Done. Paid. Paid in full. Finished. Final. Complete. It's paid. You with me? The price demanded by the law was paid by Jesus. This is a biblical picture of atonement. Okay? The law is holding us hostage. And Jesus' death is a ransom. And guess what happens when the ransom gets paid? Freedom. Are you with me? It's another picture. Another biblical picture of the atonement. It is important to recognize that this redeeming from the law is in relation to the violations we committed against the law in our sin. Okay, now follow me. I'm, and I'm going to take you into a, de, a, a kind of a deeper discussion about the law next week. But I want you to get this picture, okay? We're redeemed from the curse of the law. We're not redeemed from the law itself. And even though the law is opposed to us and stands against us, it's also holy and righteous and good. Are you with me? So what is it that we're redeemed from? The curse of the law. The penal sanctions of the law. You understand? And, and so Jesus has become for us that payment price that the law was demanding because of sins. Okay? That's not to say anything of the righteousness that the law demands in our practice, in our life. Are you with me? Okay? So we're going to take that, that whole thing apart next week when we talk about the sufficiency of the atonement. But I, I want to say these few things here in this section. That 
However, there is expressed in the law the very character and nature of God to which we look and eagerly desire to possess. Okay? So remember how the law in Romans 3, 19 and 20, the law makes us conscious of sin and that through the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. We can't be justified by doing the good things of the law because we've already sinned and violated and now we have penal sanctions. So all the good we do isn't going to help us in those penal sanctions we already have to pay. Are you with me? But the point is, is that through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Well, what do you mean by that, Paul? Well, the character and the nature of God is expressed to us in the law so that now we can see how we violate his nature when we sin. Are you with me? Not only that, but it gives, us, it, gives it to us in a way that we can totally understand how to apply it to our life. You know, if your neighbor's donkey falls in the pit, my God, man, go over there and help him. Are you with me? And the law is so plain. It's so simple. It's all right out there telling us how to love each other and how to love God. Amen? And that's how we need to see the law. We need to see the law as that instructor and that tutor that leads us to Christ. So where's Jesus? Well, he's over there in the pit helping his brother out, getting the donkey. And you ought to do likewise. <laughs> Amen? So the law has this, this glorious uh, goal. It's not, it's not just to manifest what sin is, but it's to tell us, therefore, what righteousness is so that we can do it. Amen? Are you with me? We're going to talk about that, but because uh, there's a lot of quandaries there, right? And again, the gospel is under attack there, again, by the legalist. You know? It, it, it's just, I mean, just on, on every turn, there's, an, there's a gospel attack, <laughs> you know? But we'll get there. We'll, we'll line that out. So then, all right, we are not redeemed from this eager desire and love for God's holy law, but only the penal sanctions it imposes upon us because of our failure to meet its holy requirements. Okay? There's a negative side of the law. It's the part that says, if you break this, you die. Okay? That's the part we're redeemed from. It doesn't mean now we dismiss the law. God forbid that we should dismiss his holy law. Amen? Rather, Paul says, we uphold the law. Amen? Okay. <clears throat> so then. So we honor and love the law in all of its goodness and the holy price it imposes upon our failures to obey it, having been fully paid by the redemption of Jesus Christ. And this is what the scripture says. In him, we have redemption through his blood. We have it. We've been redeemed. You get the final there again? You get the past tense? We have redemption. We're not waiting for a redemption. Right? We're not waiting to be reconciled to God. We have redemption through his blood, through the cross. All those decrees against us. Guess what? Canceled them out. Nailed them to the cross. Taken them out of the way. Those are biblical terms. Are you with me? And so we have this redemption. Right? In heaven, they're glorifying God, Revelation 5. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy art thou to take the book and to break its seals, for thou wast slain and didst purchase for God with thy blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Amen? And the scripture goes on to describe what that worship experience looks like. Amen? Thus, thus we get our doxology. Right? Thus we get our high praises for the Lord Jesus Christ who's exalted above every other name. Amen? To this end, therefore, the redemption that is in Christ has redeemed us from the very power of sin that we might live a new life free from the penalties of divine justice and eager to do what is good. Listen to this. Not only have you been redeemed from the very consequences and penal sanctions of sin, but you have been released from its power by the, by the death of Christ. Sin no longer has power over you. Its power has been broken by Christ. And this is a New Testament. This is a New Testament truth. In Titus it says, He gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. 
You see, now when we fail, we don't have this law looming over our head ready to kill us every time we fail. All of that wrath has been absorbed in Christ. God says, look what I've done for you. Now will you please obey me? Are you with me? Through Christ's redemptions, through Christ's redemption, the consequences of the devil's temptations to sin have been fully paid, and he can no longer accuse and threaten us with the holy demands of the law, because we have been set free from these to now honor and serve God, not by the motivation of fear, but of thanksgiving and devoted love. In this redemption, Christ destroyed the devil's work. And you know what his work is, right? He's that guy that's just accusing before God day and night God's holy people. Are you with me? God, look at those wicked sinners. God, you need to destroy them. Oh, God, they're so wicked. Why do you put up with that God? Right? And then he's over here whispering in our ear, Oh, you, you're worthless. Look at you, you guilty sinner. You've done this a thousand times, he says. Right? You know what the answer is? Yeah, devil, and Jesus died once for all to bring me to God. Amen? Amen. And how do I know it? The Spirit of God lives inside my heart, and it's, a, it's an earnest, it's a down payment, guaranteeing my redemption before God. Amen? Amen. I have the Spirit, devil, you lose. I know I've been cleansed. The Spirit of God lives inside me. Now I'm the temple of God. Amen? So you take your accusations elsewhere to the pit of hell and have them burn with you there. Amen? Are you with me? Don't let that devil play those games with you. Your guilt has been removed. So you understand how that's a far cry from having a license to sin. You understand what I'm saying? And I want to talk about that more. We, we, we can't. We can't look at the grace of God and think that somehow it's a license to sin. On the contrary. On the contrary. Are you with me? It's the very power of God over sin. Amen? Yes, ma'am. When you say the law throughout this lesson, Mm -hmm. um, and I know it was summed up in the New Testament, love God and love you. Is it all the, when they say the law here, does it mean all things, anything that's an offense? You have ceremonial, you have civil, and you have moral. Okay? So, in the law, there's various kinds of commandments. Okay? There are ceremonial commandments. Every year on the Day of Atonement, bring two lambs. Do your whole thing, right? Do your whole show. Okay, so there's there's ceremonial requirements, religious requirements requirements before God in the law, okay? It's also civil, right? If any man in the community murders another man, right? Take the man and try him. If he's guilty, what? String him up, right? Civil requirements in the law. Then we have moral requirements in the law, right? Moral requirements. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal, right? Honor your parents, Right? Don't take God's name in vain. Right? If your brother's donkey falls in the pit, go help your brother. Amen? Right? Those are moral requirements. Okay, so the law is summed up. I've got to end here. The law is summed up in, in these requirements. Okay? And so when we talk about the law, one of the things is the New Testament perspective on the law is that the law is a unity. And so the New Testament never tells us, Well, you've been redeemed from the ceremonial portion of the law, but not from the moral part of the law. It it doesn't do it like that, okay? When the New Testament speaks about the Old Testament law, it's the law. It's a unity, okay? And it's a unity talking about all of this. So that springs a whole bunch of questions on us. Well, does that mean we can not obey the Ten Commandments? Well, God forbid that we should say something like that, right? So we kind of have to maybe look to the New Testament to see how it tells us to, uh, to be in our perspective of the law and, and, and how we relate to the law now as a Christian. Are you with me? That's what the Jews were struggling with, the converts, you know, the ones converted from Judaism. This is a massive controversy in the first century. 
As a matter of fact, the first, the very first heresies were, were, what, were, were put on by what they call the Judaizers. Right? And that, those, that, that was the first opponents to the gospel. Right? But we'll get there. So let's pray. God, our Father, Lord, we, we honor you and we bless you. We thank you, God, for this glorious redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Oh, God, may we treasure it. May it be to us precious blood, God. And I pray, Lord, that it would motivate us, Lord, to love you and to walk in all your ways and to serve you and to obey your holy law. God, may our lives be a reflection of our Lord Jesus. Help us to be like him, God. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.